0: Welcome to Me and Steve Talk RPGs, a podcast where me and my friend Steve try and help you get the most out of your role-playing game experience.
1: Welcome back to Me and Steve Talk RPGs. Today, we're going to be talking about settings. So, settings are an important part of any RPG. I think you'd agree with that, right, Steve?
0: Yep. I'm also setting on my chair. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, um... Settings settings are typically the world that you're playing in, the world that you're interacting with, maybe even just in general, like the room that you're in, that can be a setting or or a more localized setting. Um, different RPGs do settings differently. We're going to delve into a little bit of how Dungeons & Dragons does it, how a few other games play with them, and, and just sort of get into that a little bit deeper. So you want to kick us off with talking about types of settings, maybe?
0: Yeah, sure. Why not? You know, settings, like you said, it's the environment you're playing in, be that just literally the room or the space near to your character, or it can also, you know, extend all the way out to the world or the, the universe that you're playing in, depending on the genre of the game. And genre and setting tend to tie together a lot, though not They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, exactly. They're not mutually exclusive. You know, I I think in in your very, very quick list, you'd have fantasy, more recent historical, near modern, slightly advanced future, and then far future, which typically is also sci-fi
1: right and and a lot of time in the far future you see space mm-hmm. now i would like to see and and this is something that i have to look into a little bit more and you know if maybe you folks know of one send it out to me i'd like to look into it i would love to see a space game set in like the 60s during the space race i think that would be a cool game to play in
0: well you could, i'm sure well i don't know i don't know of any out there in that genre but that could be interesting yeah
1: i think that would be a fun game just to play around with So, settings can make or break a game for me. If I'm not into your setting, I really don't have interest in you, as far as a game. It really can make or break it for me. I'm more picky than most, because I don't like hard fantasy, but I still like Dungeons & Dragons. And I think the only reason I like Dungeons & Dragons is because, no matter how descriptive you can get, I can change what I perceive in my mind and play more towards what I want uh, as far as that setting which is why I tend towards Eberron. I like a more science fiction or science-based magic than I'm a wizard and I just produce magic.
0: Yeah, well, you and I could sit here and talk for probably a couple days on Eberron if we really wanted to. Yeah. But uh, I think maybe the place to start then is, you know, start with fantasy because most people equate role-playing games with Dungeons & Dragons and Dungeons & Dragons, generally speaking, and what it was more or less written for is what's commonly referred to as high fantasy. Fantasy, Where you've got a significant amount of magic being thrown around. Also, not just a significant amount, but higher level magics being relatively common. To a certain point, I would say it's very Tolkien-esque, uh, Lord of the Rings. Although, really, if you look at... Lord of the Rings. There is not a ton of magic involved. There's very little spellcasting.
1: I argue, and I have argued in the past, that Lord of the Rings is mid to low fantasy. It does have the fantastical creatures, but it doesn't have the magic and the cost that the magic, especially in the books, it goes into a little bit farther in the Silmarillion, if I'm remembering right. I'm not the biggest Lord of the Rings fan.
0: I have yet to read the Silmarillion, but I have read the Lord of the Rings trilogy and read the other ones years ago, but it's not recently.
1: High school was a rough time for me. I had a teacher that insisted I read them, and uh, <laughs> you want to make me hate something really fast. You insist I read it.
0: Yeah, so you have you know high fantasy, which is again your your typical wizards and casters everywhere, which again is where the theme space that a lot of Dungeons and Dragons is played in. Then you have, like you said, you know mid to low fantasy, where you get into like I said, we both kind of feel that Tolkien belongs there. That's
1: that's more of your Tolkien, your Game of Thrones universe. Even the Witcher, to some extent, is sort of there.
0: Yeah, Witcher kind of treads the line between low and gritty, I think. Yeah. Uh, low, it is low, but it's got a much more gritty element to it. Also in that vein, I would definitely throw, you know, as far as big names, Warhammer fantasy roleplay. Yeah. is very much kind of a dark, gritty... There is magic, but it's, it's not without cost, and it's not extremely common. Well, Warhammers,
1: and maybe we'll get into this a little bit farther... But depending on which version of Warhammer you're discussing, yeah, Warhammer can be more just of a dark, gritty fantasy. I I don't know enough about Warhammer RPGs to speak authoritatively on them. I would hope maybe someday we could get somebody in to speak a little bit more authoritatively about the Warhammer RPGs and and what exists. Yeah, well, there's
0: there's a lot of people out there that are deeply into that. I mean, both of us fans of a podcast called Mud and Blood, which that's originally what they started as was discussing primarily uh, Warhammer and Warhammer-esque stuff, and it's evolved now, but uh, that's still kind of a, a main love of both the hosts of that podcast
1: right from fantasy and the different levels of fantasy the different layers of fantasy let's move into more of a realistic world so we would go from fantasy to maybe more early history earlier history mhm this is where you're talking about you're getting into different games and I don't know why I'm drawing a blank but you're getting into different games that are more based off historical events or close to historical events that are that are more just realistically based Rather than having your magic, you would have maybe a story about a guy who's who's living in London and, and just surviving the streets.
0: Yeah, I'm sure there's, there's got to be something out there around, um, you know, Jack the Ripper-esque 17, you know, mid 1700s London in particular, I would think. But I'm, I'm not aware of any titles, you know, anything uh, Wild West setting could fall into that slot as well. Although straight up Western RPGs are kind of rare. They're usually some sort of weird West.
1: Right which is a game in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah, western RPGs as far as as far as uh just a straight western RPG, you get into more things like deadlands, which is yeah. which is a uh... weird, what if the West had weird creatures?
0: Yeah. You know, as you advance into the 20th century or late 19th century, you've got uh, Call of Cthulhu has always had settings, you know, 1890s, 1920s, but that has the elements of the mythos in it. So that's not just a straight up historical thing. Although you could easily play something with that engine and just drop out all the the weird stuff.
1: Right. And that's where sort of or where Delta Green comes from. It's more of a what if we age Call of Cthulhu up and play with more of a modern setting.
0: Yeah. Well, Call of Cthulhu has always had a modern setting. What Delta Green originated as was actually so to speak, if you want to call it a, a fan supplement, it was published in The Unspeakable Oath magazine, I believe, originally. And over time, it was kind of blessed by the folks at Chaosium, and then gradually this, that, and the other thing happened, and it, it has become its own game in and of itself, and now there's even sort of a spinoff from that called The Fall of Delta Green, which is a very specific period in history that the folks that make Delta Green lent to another game publisher.
1: Right. And that's where I always found Fall of Delta Green really interesting just because of its setting. And with it being set in the Vietnam era during that like Cold War era, I thought that was really interesting. I always wanted to play Fall of Delta Green. I just never got around to it. Honestly, Delta Green's good enough by its own.
0: We'll have to get that on the table sometime. I, the quick start for Fall is, I believe it's free on Drive DriveThru.
1: I believe so. I believe most of fall is easy to get a hold of just because it's not Delta Green which is their more mainline book and it's not Call of Cthulhu which is the mainline book.
0: Yeah, but you also have when you get into near modern stuff, you know, there's all kinds of of other I mean you've got the whole vampire werewolf and all those, uh, now Onyx Path, I still think of them as the White Wolf games. What was formerly the World of Darkness, I think they have another name for it now. And and really, you start also getting into stuff, well, you have the, the spy type stuff. Right. You have, especially Cyberpunk 2020, well, it is the year 2020. It's near modern. I would still, I, I would call that neo-futuristic, but... <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, it's a weird alt-present sort of, kind of... Yeah, I love it in
1: media where somebody goes with cyberpunk. They sort of knew what they were doing. Sometimes in media, you'll find somebody who writes a game, let's say maybe a game or a setting or Walt Disney World is the perfect example of this. Okay, we're going to make this future world in 1980, and we're going to make it look like what we think the future is going to look like in 2020. Well, here it is, 2020. Uh, Our future doesn't look like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. If you could predict the future that easily, you know, there's a lot of things would be out of business.
1: Oh, yeah. But no, I I love what I often refer to as Neo-Future, the 1950s take on what the future is going to look like. The Jetsons. I love that stuff because, well, that's what I want to, like, I want to play with that because that could be fun.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, that that covers a lot of the near modern stuff. And then, you know, you start trending into the sci-fi and space territory, which... Sometimes you know, Star Wars is probably the the biggest one that comes to mind, and Star Wars really, in my mind, falls into two categories. One is it's really kind of a space fantasy, and it's also space opera.
1: Right. And if you're not into Star Wars, say you're a Trekkie, there are very there are quite a few Star Trek tabletop RPGs out there actually.
0: There's been several. I know Modifius is the current license holder. Right. And those are good.
1: I've never played. Star Trek RPGs, I would probably like to at some point, I'm not as well versed in Star Trek as I am in Star Wars, but I would definitely like to play around with that and see see what exists as far as that, but Star Wars, yeah, that's the one that comes to mind in a lot of people's minds, and there's various other ones... There's various just random
0: space RPGs. I mean, there's a ton of them. You know, Mothership comes to mind, and that one is actually setting lists. You make your own setting for it. Right. Well, Alien is just recently released. Coriolis. There is a big one, and I can't... I am blanking
1: on what it is because... The Expanse? I see it at the bookstore all the time. What was that?
0: I was I was thinking The Expanse or Starfinder. Starfinder. That's it. I think that's more science fantasy though isn't it i'm not familiar with it it.
1: is but it has the space travel different planets type stuff that's the only reason i was Mm -hmm. thinking of it because the book is maybe like four inches thick yeah i I, i've picked it up and put it back down a couple times because i look at it and go this looks fun and then i pick
0: up that book and i go
1: oh uh hmm, there's a lot here (laughs)
0: That runs on the Pathfinder engine, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I I thought I heard rumors they were working on a second edition because, you know, they just released a second edition of Pathfinder, but...
1: It is possible. I wouldn't put it past them to have a second edition of Starfinder. I know it's a very popular game because I've seen it, and and this is my gauge of how popular a, a non-D&D RPG is, I saw it at Barnes & Noble.
0: Well, that means it's Paizo, basically. Yeah. <laughs> some of the, well, I don't know who all haven't been in a Barnes & Noble in quite some time, so. I have seen some Green Ronin stuff there, though.
1: Yeah, Barnes & Noble, they're starting to branch out and get into RPGs, which I think is kind of neat.
0: Well, it's... It's a market that's growing. It really has taken off in the last five to ten years, I think. You know, the, the big shot in the arm for it was really when, when digital publishing became a thing. And so a lot more indie developers, not even indie developers, but I think it took production costs down because, you know, digital layout, while it's still a lot of work in an art form, I don't think is nearly as costly as the old, you know, literal cut and paste layouts. Right, but I think you know we're we're starting to wander off down one of our rabbit holes again <laughs>
1: we are we are definitely getting lost on that rabbit hole, but that's okay.
0: that's what that's we do. what we
1: do that was our that was our stated goal. What is our goal? Our goal is to ramble aimlessly yeah. about RPGs.
0: look, and if you think we ramble now, you should hear us talking to each other after a game session where the conversation will just... You
1: should try and pay attention. I would love, I would pay somebody to chart our conversations to figure out where the sequiturs are.
0: (laughs) 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 <laughs> yes that, that that would be amusing I think. So do we need to cover more types of settings? I mean sci-fi really is only limited by your imagination and and to a certain point that's the true with any setting because well if you can't find a setting you like you can always just make your own.
1: Well there there are tools like gurps. Yeah and I mean that is the generic roleplay system. Like generic universal roleplay system. Yeah. And if you're like I don't know and D20 is a term we refer to, but D20 is also another generic. D20 Modern is a generic role-playing system.
0: Yeah, you know, and you do have a lot of game systems now, or not a lot, but you have several game systems out now that are quite popular that are designed to be used in a multitude of settings. Savage Worlds comes to mind. Genesis, which we're hoping to do a little bit more of an exploration with because that uses a, a very, very unique dice system along with Star Wars, you know, that's a a game that really Genesis is generic system. That's how they got the name. And there are tools within the core rule book for you to design your own setting. That's really what it was made for was here's a set of rules or a framework. Go make your own game. Yeah, I definitely feel that if you can't find
1: a game in the setting that you're looking for, there are plenty of tools out there to get that setting and get a game that you can play in that setting.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: I've played with GURPS and I love Gurps. <laughs> I rant on it, but it is it is probably one of my favorite generics because it's it's very well done.
0: Yeah, see, I've never actually experienced it. I do there's uh one guy on the one Discord I'm on that's a big fan.
1: Well it's I mean, and and this'll speak this'll speak a little bit to it. It's a Steve Jackson system. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of his earlier things, but he doesn't produce anything that's underproduced. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But there's also if you do enough research you can co op D to make make do with there's there's plenty of unofficial D add ons and even official D&D add-ons that change that game fundamentally.
0: Yeah, D&D, I mean, you know, I have my own opinions as far as that engine in general, but there is stuff out there that's been done to make it function in non-fantasy settings, and it functions as it does. You know, and hey, last I think it was last week I brought up the Spy game. Hey, I plunked down a chunk of money and going to be getting that book. You know, I, I'm hoping it'll be a lot of fun and I think it should be.
1: Right. I'm definitely excited to see Spy Game in person. So sort of transitioning out of types of settings. So let's break into using descriptive terminology when describing your settings. I have issues with this. I have on many occasions tried to start using a thesaurus more. And this is what I refer to as the Mercer effect. Because the more I listen to Critical Role, the more I realize that, A, as a writer, he sits and has a plethora of useful descriptive terms and words, and B, yeah, they really do break into the thesaurus sometimes and get some very descriptive, useful terminology for describing where you're at, describing the setting that you're currently in.
0: Yeah, and that's an art all in itself. I'll I tell you what, the thing that opened my eyes to some of the stuff that Matt does, is when we were initially talking about doing this podcast, we were testing out a recording method and we recorded a game session that I ran online. And I'm going back through it, practice editing, and I'm going, oh my God. I say, um, and I pause and I, you know, I fill things. And then you, you know, listen to or watch Critical Role and there's very little of that.
1: It's very seamless. It's very seamless. And it, it, it just shows how talented him and how well-versed in the gaming system he is Mm -hmm. in and well-versed in the English language.
0: Yeah. Well, just, I mean, yeah, like you said, it's how quick he can think on his feet and I'm sure he has a lot of preparation, even if it's not, so to speak, written down or whatever he's been thinking about, well, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do that. You know, he's got a whole big bag of tricks that he can pull on. When he
1: needs them. Oh, absolutely. And this is this is something that you see with a new table, but it sort of gets used to at the time. And this is something I'll break into a little bit. Once you get used to the people at the table, they can do crazy, ridiculous things, but it's not that unpredictable. If you know the yeah. people at the table you're playing with, you can plan for oh, well, I, I know that they're not going to do something completely off the wall
0: <laughs>
1: most of the time.
0: Well, yeah, that's true. You know, Getting to know your players, that's a big thing for any GM, really. And I think that's something that you're going to struggle with if you're playing a lot online because you know by the very nature of it, it's not going to be quite as stable a group as it would be if you're all meeting up at mm-hmm. Joe's house every other Saturday or whatever it is that you do. Right. That's where it becomes a little bit difficult, but you, you really have to try and learn the group that you're playing with. Yeah. As you were talking about terminology, though. The one thing that, that I have picked up from a couple different places is don't necessarily just focus on the visuals. Now, you know, include sound, include smell is a huge one. Uh, even, you know, you catch a taste sometime in the air textures and, and you know you're you're walking across the ground and you feel the gravel crunching under your feet
1: right just doing visuals can really it can leave the players with a hollow image of what the setting is you have an image in your head of what the setting is but it's just it's like a picture it's like a looking at the background of somebody's computer it's not yeah it's not it's not a setting. It's not somewhere where your character is. It's a splash screen.
0: Yeah, and and in that effort, I think you also need to try and make the setting come alive in the context that there is more there than just the stuff that you're directly interacting with. You know, and for a reference, I would say... Look at a lot of television shows and then look at Breaking Bad. Right. And how the little things that that happened around Walter White and little choices he made had effects on things that he didn't know he had anything to do with. Right. My favorite
1: way to demonstrate a setting to a player is I go back to the old Spaghetti Westerns where you just had these long establishing shots and just beautiful scapes. And I go back to that because it sets up, okay, we're in this town. Where is this town? The town is in the middle of nowhere. What does the middle of nowhere mean? It means that there's desert to either side of this town.
0: Yeah, you want to do that. You want to focus on the things that are important to your setting. Does that mean, you know, like you said, your town's in the middle of nowhere? Well... Okay, now well, that's going to mean a couple things. That's going to mean this town needs to be very self-sufficient. In that, if you need something fixed, there's got to be somebody in that town that fixes that stuff, or that town isn't going to exist. Right. Or what are the trade routes? What are the main roads? And this is
1: where, if you're somebody who's playing, with, and and this is very you know to your players, and you you can cater this to how you want to play the game, but if you're playing somebody who is mostly interested in combat. Yeah, you can get away with less description on the location and more description on the combat. That's fine. But when you're playing a roleplay-heavy game, you want to focus on the setting because the setting itself is its own character. It's not just where you are. It is a character in the story that can change, that can alter decisions on what your players are doing. That can set up the world itself. It's very important that the setting is elaborated on and clarified. And if your players have questions about the setting, feel free to go immaculate. Go, go and go and go.
0: Yeah. And before I forget about it, I want to say, when you're trying to build or establish a setting, you know, give reoccurring people names. You don't have to give everybody a name, but you're going to have the guy that runs the horse stable. Well, he's got a name. If you're going to deal with him on a regular basis, he's going to have a name. You don't have to name everybody, but take notes for yourself if you're running the game so that you know who this person is. And eventually it'll stick in your head, but I have more notebooks that I've used for gaming strewn around than I know what to do with, but just keep something there and and just scribble out a name and you know, well, this is the guy that runs the armor shop in Silver Falls or whatever it is. Well,
1: to to get off onto names a little bit, everybody usually has their cell phone or a connected device of some kind. Mm -hmm. If you have a hard time coming up with a name, type in name generator and pick a language. If it's fantasy, I usually go with French, German, something that I can pronounce, but something that's going to be a little bit not English. If it's future, I usually go more towards like Blade Runner. So more Japanese, Chinese, you know, Asian type names. But name generators can really save your butt sometimes when it comes to oh, what is the name of that? Oh,
0: who are we talking to? Uh, Bob, sure. Good. The other trick I've heard for that, and I do have actually a a fantasy name generator app on my phone, but the other trick I've heard to to do that with, and so you're not stumbling is in your DM notebook or GM notebook or whatever it is that, you know, maybe you just use a, a, a document pulled up on your laptop or whatever. Have a list of names already written out. And then as you use them, just add a line beside it that says briefly what it is. And then you can go back and elaborate more if you think you need to.
1: Yeah, that that can really make the difference. Using NPCs in your setting, it makes all the difference of... We ran a simple dungeon crawl. It was over the holidays. I ran a simple dungeon crawl and it was this tower that you're climbing up through. Well, one layer, they just hated your players. No explicit reason. But it gave the characters, and it gave the world some character. It gave the world some liveliness. Yeah. Like, sometimes you just walk into a town, and they're like, why are you here?
0: Yeah, don't be afraid to, you know, make make a different town. And this even goes, if you're playing in an established setting, be it, you know, the Forgotten Realms, or, you know, the World of the Witcher, or whatever. And I know in the Witcher book, it actually does go into some depth about, you know, how different areas geographically feel about people from other geographic areas, and you want to try and work that stuff in, but don't by any means ever feel that you're beholden to do things exactly as the books tell you, because, well, most of these are based off of some sort of media, and if you want to see it exactly like it's in the media, then just watch the media. Don't be afraid to take liberties. Right, just consume what the
1: media is. I am very much in that in that boat because... I love playing with homebrew stuff. I love changing the world in my own way and putting my fingerprint on it. Mm-hmm. I'll, take, I'll take a setting, you know, Eberron's perfect example. My Eberron campaign is completely different than what the book describes Eberron as. That's okay. That's because I wanted to play in Eberron with these rule set, but I wanted to tell my story. And if you have a story to tell, that's great. You tell your story. Yeah.
0: And I mean, you know, as far as Eberron's concerned, I mean, if you listen to, you know, anytime Keith Baker talks about it and someone asks him a question, he almost always starts it with the following phrase, in my Eberron. Right.
1: Right. And that is the big thing in my Eberron is that's where I always go back to. I I always go back to how Keith Baker describes in his Eberron.
0: Yeah. And by him saying in my Eberron, he does not mean my in the context that I am the guy who came up with the original concept for Eberron. And so this is how it is. He means my as in this is the way I run Eberron when I run a game in it. You can do whatever you want with these tools. And if you don't want to use some of them, then don't.
1: That's what it is a lot of times it's a tool set. It's not hard rules most of the time. Now, if it is hard rules and that's how you want to play, if you have a pre-written and you just want to follow that by the book, go for it. That's fine. But if you're like, I like this pre-written, but I don't like this, 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 this," change it.
0: Yeah. Let's say you wanted to play, we'll say a, a, a 1920s industrial espionage sort of game. Well, off the top of my head, I don't know of any game made specifically to do that, but you could very easily take the Call of Cthulhu rule set and just strip out all the weird stuff and use all the, the skills and so forth. And the setting, I mean, that's the one thing that I love about real world-based settings is that you've got virtually unlimited resources to plunder to get information. You can just look stuff up and go, oh, this actually happened, that actually happened. And sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. You want great ideas? I'll tell you a show that that I actually DVR to kind of just watch when I don't have anything else that I want to do. Or there's a show on, I think it's the Travel Channel called Mysteries of the Abandoned.
1: Yes, I like Mysteries of the Abandoned. I was going to say, there's a show that I... Watch when I don't have ideas.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's great. It's just some of these, you know, these old, be it old Cold War bases from any different side, just all sorts of weird stuff, you know, old abandoned prisons to the town in South America that Henry Ford bought to just all sorts of stuff that. People, if you made it up, people will be like, what? No, it actually happened. Right. I mean, don't be afraid, and I don't want to say
1: steal in the sense of, like, fully stealing, but don't be afraid to co-opt things from other media that you watch. I've been watching Into the Badlands. That's a weird show.
0: (laughs) Yes, I love that show.
1: It's a weird show, and it has a lot of weird things in it, but it makes for perfect additions to different RPGs.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And I will be straight up the special characters in that movie, or not movie, that that TV series. The more I watch that, the more I'm convinced that the ASMR in 5th Edition Dungeons & Dragons were a major inspiration to that archetype, if you will.
1: Oh, I wouldn't doubt it one iota. Yeah, consume other media and go, oh, I like that. Yes. Co opt it.
0: Yeah. Add it in, borrow it. I mean, what I've heard it said that, you know, there are only what seven original stories? It's just a matter of reskinning them. To make up something truly, truly original is extremely difficult. What really is happening with most of these things is someone is taking something that's already there and combining it or redressing it, and it looks new. Right. Exactly. But if you want to play this, this, and this without this other thing that's in it, then usually you can just kind of toss it out, not use it. Talking about settings, you know, the setting that I really fell in love with first in gaming was the Rift setting from Palladium, which, I mean, it's got pretty much everything from normal people to magic to cyborgs to people in power armor to giant mecha. It's got everything, basically. But largely when I ran it, I didn't use any of the magic stuff because I just didn't feel the need. Not that it wasn't there, but I just never used it. Well, there's been something in D&D
1: that's existed for a long time that I don't think anybody's ever touched or used effectively. There's a whole psionics that exists in Dungeons & Dragons, and I've never seen anybody use psionics effectively.
0: I think that really started in the Dark Sun setting, I believe, back in 2nd edition, there was a, a Psionics book in 3.5, and I know they've dabbled with it a little bit in 5th edition with some of the Unarthed Arcana stuff.
1: Well, theres I was just looking through my PHB, and there's a whole section on it that nobody ever touches.
0: Yeah, I i don't remember it being in there, but it's been a while since I read my PHB.
1: But again, if you're looking for something, sometimes you just have to look a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just have to reach out your Google Foo and... Sometimes you're playing the wrong game for the wrong setting.
0: Yeah, that, that happens a lot. You know, setting and tone kind of tend to reinforce each other to a certain point. So maybe a given setting isn't great. If you want to run high drama romance, then you could set it in a post-apocalyptic world where everyone wears gas masks all the time, but it's probably not the best choice.
1: No, you're probably better to pick a different setting or pick a different game system. That's the one thing. Don't feel beholden to one game system. And as a GM or DM, if your players are stuck on Dungeons and Dragons, okay. But try and introduce them to other game systems. That's our whole goal with this. You know, we talk about Dungeons and Dragons a lot, and we both care about Dungeons and Dragons a lot. But there are a ton of independent smaller and not just independent but other games out there that exist that are that are meant to be played
0: yeah the big publishers at this point you know you've got wizards of the coast you've got paizo making you know pathfinder starfinder you've got kocm is probably the next biggest one um modiphius although modiphius also acts as a distributor so it's kind of hard to tell where that line kind of blurs and i think the one that's really kind of Nipping at everyone's heels is probably Freelikon. It's a Swedish publisher that's been putting out some really good stuff in the last few years. They put out uh, Symburum, Forbidden Lands. They do the Alien RPG. Uh, They have a, a space one that I've heard a lot of good things about called Coriolis um they actually just recently wrapped up the kickstarter they got the rights to the old twilight 2000 game and i also believe they recently acquired the rights to the one ring which is the tolkien yeah setting you know set in middle earth
1: hmm. sorry i was just looking up twilight 2000 because i hadn't heard that name before
0: that's an interesting one. that
1: is set in the aftermath of world war three mm-hmm. and it's It's a Cold War style game published by GDW back in the day.
0: Yeah, I actually, I somehow missed that when it was, you know, back in the 90s, but uh, I did back the Kickstarter. So uh, maybe we'll do something once I get a playtest PDF or something. That's something
1: I want to get my hands on because that sounds cool. But Fantasy Flight puts out RPGs. Mm-hmm. Play a fantasy flight RPG. Uh, they're, if anything, they're well produced.
0: Yeah, well, they have Star Wars Genesis, Legend of the Five Rings. I think are their their three big ones. Right. But I think they have a couple other ones.
1: Well, and I can I can speak to that Legend of the Five Rings one. It's really well done. They did a lot of work on that.
0: Mm-hmm. I have a quick starter somewhere. I think that I downloaded, but I haven't even read it. I have a habit of like, oh, that looks interesting. Let me grab that quick start, and then because it's digital, I never actually read it.
1: Let me tell you the truth. My favorite place in the world to go visit is half-priced books. I love going to half Price books. You go to the RPG section. You can find D&D and all that other stuff, but it's where you find the weirder RPGs. It's where you find the ones that, oh, I haven't heard of this one before. What's it? And check it out. Because usually they're cheap. Usually you're talking about at half Price books, I can pick up a full weird RPG for 20 bucks,
0: mm-hmm. you know? That's yeah, half the cost of a, a D&D book. Exactly.
1: I love shopping there. Ollie's. Uh, it's, a, it's a weird store, but
0: I've found weird
1: RPGs at Ollie's.
0: Really? I've never seen an RPG book there. Yeah. You
1: know, I actually found just a couple, like, over in their young adult section.
0: Okay. That could explain why I didn't find <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah.
1: I, I was wandering around the young adult section, and I was like, what is this? And it was just a couple, like, just weird odds and end books. Nothing, like, they were all starter kits, but nothing that was, like... Too common or too Mm well-known?
0: That's another thing. A lot of companies now are putting out starter kits. We've talked about Fantasy Flight and Star Wars, and I actually just recently picked up the starter box for the Edge of the Empire, which is one of the, technically, it's three games they have for Star Wars, but they focus on different elements of Star Wars. There's Edge of the Empire, there's Force and Destiny, and there's the Rebel one. I can't remember what it's called now. Just a little editing note. It's been driving me crazy that I couldn't remember the name of the third Star Wars title, and it is actually Age of Rebellion.
1: Well, and if you're looking for a place to find RPGs, DriveThruRPG. Yes. DriveThruRPG has new stuff, old stuff, mostly PDFs. But the other thing is, is that there's also free things on there. Yes. There's tons of free RPGs on DriveThru.
0: Yeah, there's actually, I downloaded two uh, before we started recording tonight. But now the one thing, and I will say this, and I found this really weird, and I did find out later there's a reason for it. You will not find any Star Wars game stuff on drive-thru RPG. There is a reason for this, and it has nothing to do with DriveThru not getting along with Fantasy Flight Games or the publisher or anything like that. There are no legitimate digital copies of any Star Wars gaming books out there, because Electronic Arts, through their licensing agreement with Lucasfilm or whoever it was, owns the rights to all digital gaming media in the Star Wars IP. Boo-boo-hiss. So, if you by chance stumble across a PDF of a Star Wars game, it is not legitimate. It may be a scanned copy of the legitimate book, but you can nowhere buy a PDF of any of the Star Wars games.
1: Yeah, so that's maybe something to keep in mind. But again, if you look hard enough, you can find almost any setting.
0: Yeah, you really can. And there's so much out there, you know, drive through lets you sort stuff by genre, by rule set, you know, I mean, it's a search bar. Now their website, I keep wondering when they're going to update it because it looks like it's been the same design for, I don't know, about 17 years?
1: Yeah, they say they started in 2004 and looks like their last update was probably 2010.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a dated design, but it's functional. I'll give it that. I actually, though, I prefer the desktop version. Even when I'm on my phone, I'll click it over to the desktop version as opposed to the mobile version, because it just—I feel like I can navigate it easier.
1: Well, and and not only that, it's a good way to tell if you're on the legitimate drive-through RPG.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we kind of wandered off down a little bit of a trail that was still connected to what we were doing. I guess maybe what we ought to do at this point is, is talk a little bit about some of the big established settings that you may have some experience with. Like Steve said, you know, we're talking about d and D a a lot because, well, that's what a lot of people are familiar with. And let's face it, they are the most popular game out there by quite a wide margin. I actually took a little time this afternoon and did a little research on settings in, in D&D over the years. And surprisingly, there haven't been as many big published ones as you would think. To To start, you go to Greyhawk, which was... So to speak, the original D&D setting. Although for the first few years, D&D didn't actually have a setting. That was entirely up to those playing it. Uh, What Greyhawk really was was the world that Gary Gygax built for his personal games. You know, starting in in like late '72 to early '73. You know, it started with just a dungeon underneath a castle, and then it expanded to the castle and the city, and gradually the world. And then they actually released it. As a published product and I think like 1980 then another one and and I'm sure I'm gonna have some people screaming at their electronic devices here but there's Dragonlance and I don't know nearly as much about Dragonlance as many people out there I know there are a lot of people who really really love Dragonlance to just give it a real quick overview that was developed by uh, Laura and Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss Uh, was released in approximately 1984 and it has had an absolute boatload of content done for it. Maybe not so much in game manuals, but according to Wikipedia, there's over 190 published novels set in the Dragonlance setting, which is quite a number. Yeah, that's, that's quite a few. You know, Joe Manganello is actually quite a Dragonlance fan, has reportedly been working with various people to try and get a movie or movie series going about it.
1: Yeah, I know they've been working on Dragonlance for a while, just because it is one of those, it's such a popular RPG setting, and rightfully so.
0: Yeah, it was iconic, and, and a lot of the people that I first game with talked about it a lot. I just had no exposure to all those things, and so it was like, okay, it's another place where people run around with swords and stuff. And and I know there's a, a quite a rich history to it, I'm just not familiar with it at all.
1: Well, I'm not as familiar with that particular setting as I am with the Forgotten Realms, which is just the generic, in my opinion, when you say Dungeons & Dragons, that's the generic. You
0: know what I mean? It is. Well, that is also that has really become the case when, with 5th edition, where um it has become the default setting for most of the adventure books. The only exception, semi-exception, really being uh, Ghosts of Saltmarsh, which technically, I believe, a lot of people claim is set in Greyhawk. But anyway, you mentioned the Forgotten Realms. This was originally developed by Ed Greenwood, actually starting in the late 60s when he was a child. He would just make up stories and write them down. And uh, then he started publishing articles in, uh, I don't know if it was Dragon Magazine back then or, or some other magazine that TSR was putting out in the late 70s. And then eventually in about 1986, he sold the rights to the IP to TSR which is the company that produced Dungeons and Dragons originally was then sold to Wizards of the Coast anyway, and just the amount of of stuff that has been produced in Forgotten Realms over the years is is mind boggling. Ed has written quite a few novels, uh, all the R A or maybe not all, but you know the R A Salvatore novels that everyone knows about Druid Stewart and um, most of the D and D computer games, going back even to Pools of Radiance. Neverwinter Nights, all the Baldur's Gate stuff, all that is all set in the Forgotten Realms.
1: Right. Really, Forgotten Realms is the default in most cases. I mean, that's where, when you are playing, when you're playing just out of the main book, that you're playing Forgotten Realms.
0: Yeah. Forgotten Realms has really become the default setting. I mean, you know, the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide is set there, um, Storm King's Thunder, Princes of the Apocalypse, the Dragon Queen, uh, even descended into Avernus, starts in Baldur's Gate, which is in the Realms. The the Chult book, I can't think of the name of it right now. That's Forgotten Realms. Uh, Ed is still active to this day. He and uh, another gentleman just released a book on the DM's Guild that is about the border territories, I believe, is, is the key part of the title. I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head. So this guy is still actively thinking and developing content for this even though he sold it 35 years ago. I didn't write this down because I didn't think about it. Is as uh, Ravenloft, which I know came out back in the 2nd edition days which is kind of D&D's gothic horror kind of setting. Curse of Strahd is, is set in Ravenloft. They didn't put that on the books this time, I don't think. No. But that's what it is.
1: I'll say this. So 5th edition has a couple weird things. One of the major weird things is that they have sort of issued the settings in a way. Other than Eberron and maybe a few others, they sort of don't advertise. Oh well, this is the Forgotten Realms. This is Ravenloft. This is
0: you know. Right. They've just kind of got this is D and D. Right.
1: They have sort of because it used to be and and back in the old Second Edition days. When you bought a book that was Dragonlance, it said on the front of it, "This is a Dragonlance adventure."
0: Yes, yes, very much. They had their own logos for all of it. And I wonder maybe if, if some of that certain intellectual properties maybe didn't transfer with sales, or it's anyone's guess. And and when you get into to copyright and trademark law, that's a oh gosh, is that a rabbit hole? Yeah. Um. <laughs> And then there comes to a setting, and this one was done also in 4th edition, but uh, my experience with it came all in 2nd edition. This was Dark Sun. And Dark Sun was developed by TSR in-house in uh, about early 90s. I think 91 was the release. And Dark Sun was very different. It's kind of a, a low-magic fantasy, kind of a post-apocalyptic dying Earth. It's a desert planet. You know, water, like you actually, there are rules for how much water you have to carry. Magic works extremely differently. Uh, standard arcane magic actually destroys plant life. And all your your clerics, as opposed to serving deities, they're elemental. Uh, you, know, you would have a, a fire cleric or a water cleric or earth cleric, whatever. I don't remember how they did druids in that setting or they... May not have even really had them. They also did some weird stuff with the races. There are a couple of unique races to Dark Sun. Uh, the biggest one being the thrycreen which are six-armed, people-sized praying mantises. Yeah,
1: they're in the base monster manual now.
0: Are they? Okay, I again, it's one of those things. I own the book. I've flipped through it, but I don't actually go through and read it that much. And then, of course, there is the last one, I think, to talk about significantly would be both your and I's probably favorite D&D setting is Eberron.
1: Right. Yeah, it's it's definitely my favorite setting.
0: Yeah, mine is mine as well. And where the, the first three that we talked about, Greyhawk, Dragonlance, and the Forgotten Realms would all be classified as high fantasy. Dark Sun is probably more of a low fantasy, post-apocalyptic, and dying Earth elements. Eberron, a lot of people think it's steampunk. And... I would argue that it's not. It has some elements that are vaguely steampunk-ish, but I think you have to go back and hear Keith Baker, the guy who originally came up with this, and the story of how it came to be actually is kind of interesting. In, in 2002, Wizards of the Coast was looking for a new setting. So they put out this, basically a contest to say, hey, here, make something up, send us a like a one-page or a two-page thing on a setting, and we'll pick the one we like the best. So they got, as I recall reading, 11,000 plus submissions. Well, the one that ended up getting picked out of all these was Keith Baker's Eberron setting. And the way Keith describes it is not as steampunk or as high magic, but as wide magic, which I find kind of interesting. And the way he defines that is that Yes, there's a lot of magic in the world, but the magic in the world that is widespread is all low-level. To put in, in D&D terms, primarily spells of third level or lower. But one of his core tenets as he was coming up with this world was, okay, given the way that spells work in Dungeons & Dragons, what would happen if we approached magic the way we approach technology and used it as a science? And what would the world look like if you harnessed cantrips to do utility things. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's Eberron in a nutshell because that is how that works. He talks about people that, their whole job is they know one or two spells. Mm-hmm.
0: It really creates a very unique environment. And the other thing is is that just on the main continent of Corvair, there's so many things to play with in terms of, I mean, you, you've literally just had a hundred year long civil war. You had a country that just disappeared literally overnight. You've got, you know, also different takes on on races and alignment than than most other settings have had. You've got all this, you know, we could, like I said earlier, you know, we could spend hours and hours talking about this because both of us find it extremely fascinating. But there's, there's kind of Cold War-esque elements. There's really just almost anything you want to be had in Eberron as long as you want it with a fantasy twist.
1: Yeah. And if you really wanted to, you could ignore the fantasy twist. Yeah. You could take it full-blown steampunk pretty
0: easy, especially if you wanted to play in Sharn or something.
1: Right. It it wouldn't take much to just take it to a full-blown steampunk game.
0: No, it really wouldn't. I know you have to have thoughts on this, Steve. I've been rambling here, but...
1: No, there's not much I can really add. Eberron is definitely my favorite setting. I am obsessed with the magic-powered... You know, it's it's not steampunk. It is more of a magic-powered world. It is... I've heard somebody called it mage-punk once. And I think that's decently close to what it is. But Eberron is... It, at least in Keith Baker's mind, it, from what I can gather, it's more about the noir and the pulp of it all than the magic and the technology. I definitely enjoy that more myself. I think Eberron allows for more pulp stories to be told rather than the other settings, which are more high fantasy.
0: Yeah, I think Eberron, to me, views magic as a tool, not just look at all the impressive things I can do. Right. If that makes any sense.
1: It it does. And I just, I find that fascinating. I really do. Yeah. And honestly, we could go on for
0: an hour, maybe a couple hours about Eberron. Oh, I'm sure we could. Uh, the other thing that, that is unique to Eberron in any of the settings other than maybe Ravenloft that we've, we've talked about, and I don't know with uh, Dark Sun, because they, they haven't done a lot with that. I know they did some with it in fourth edition, but I'm blissfully unaware of whatever they did in fourth edition other than I have a PHB sitting in a stack of books. But in any case, the timeline in Eberron, and according to Keith, and so far through what Wizards has put out, because they do technically own the intellectual property, is that they are not actually advancing the timeline. There are other regions of the world that they have yet to flesh out, and Keith just dropped a book about a month ago, I think at the time of recording, that is, you know, it's called Exploring Eberron, but the joke in the communities online is that he should have just called it My Eberron.
1: Right, and again, it goes back to when you hear Keith Baker talk about Eberron, he refers to it as his Eberron and that's not him being arrogant or him being like no no this is my create no that's him referring to it as his Eberron for you to get ideas from.
0: Yeah, his his Eberron at his table, not his Eberron as in he owns it. Right. And that's one of the big things I like about Keith
1: Baker as a artist, as a writer. I think sometimes people can get protective maybe is the term. Maybe that's the polite term to use. Protective, overly precious, perhaps. Yeah, of their settings and then get upset when,
0: oh, I did this with your setting. Whoa, how dare you? Look, I have always been the person, and, and maybe this goes back to how I played with Tinker Toys or Legos and whatever as a kid. I don't necessarily look at any setting and go, okay, this is how it has to be. I look at a setting as... A whole bunch of blocks that I can use and maybe rearrange a little bit and put into places that I want this way for what I want to do and you know I might run an Eberron campaign one time and then the next time yeah I'm still playing an Eberron but it's it's not the Eberron that I ran the last game in. I may do this or that completely differently because maybe I learned something in the previous game or maybe I just don't want whatever element, or or any other setting for that matter, not just Eberron. Right, right, exactly. Do you have any other settings you wanted to touch on?
1: Um, Well, I mean, there's a couple more settings in D&D. There's the Magic the Gathering settings with 5th edition.
0: Yeah. You know, so you're talking
1: about Ravnica, Theros. I think that's neat, because I always thought the Magic the Gathering settings were neat. I wish they would have put out an Amonket setting book, which is more of a... To put it in perspective, Steve, Amonket is Egyptian. Okay. So like Theros is Greek and Ravnica is sort of their own thing. Amonket is mm-hmm. more Egyptian, which I think would have been really fun to play with. In a D&D mm-hmm. setting, there's not many Egyptian-style high fantasy settings
0: out there. No, I can't think of any. Uh, it's kind of surprising, considering the, the kind of casual interest a lot of people have in, in more Egyptian mythology. Well, I, I think there's definitely
1: games out there that play with it, but as far as high fantasy, there's not a lot.
0: No. And to be fair, most game publishers have some sort of fantasy setting, be it Chaosium for their RuneQuest rule set. I believe theirs is called Glorantha. I don't remember the name of the world for Pathfinder. Green Ronin has Dragon Age and Fantasy Age. I think a lot of your fantasy settings are, I hate to use this word, but they're semi-generic high fantasy. and, And it's just a matter of which rule set you want to use. But again, don't be afraid to steal elements, borrow elements, whatever you want to call it. Don't be afraid to just go, oh, hey, I want to make my own setting. I mean, I played lots and lots of games in homebrew worlds. And I saw something, a meme on Facebook a while ago, and it said something to the extent of... Yeah, I just realized what my my homebrew world is. It's my favorite movies, my favorite books and my favorite comics and TV shows all rolled into one. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with and that. And there is
1: nothing wrong with that. I don't have much more to add.
0: <laughs> yeah, settings, I mean, we could go on for hours like I said, you know, Rifts was one that for me was a a, a big thing cuz I just found the the breadth of it to be fascinating. Something we haven't touched on at all is is superhero stuff and and I do find it kind of amusing there's a, there's a lot of superhero games out there but for whatever reason and I don't know if it has to do with licensing or whatever there are currently no Marvel or DC licensed games out there I don't believe. You know, I don't no. know of anyone not currently. There used to be both of them. TSR I believe had Marvel Way back in the early 80s, mid 80s, and I know somebody made a DC superheroes, but I don't remember who the publisher was. Publisher on DC
1: heroes was because I just got on Google and looked. Was Mayfair?
0: Mayfair. I've heard the name, but I think Mayfair game since defunct.
1: They are, but there is. Let me look at a few things because I I'm going to challenge you on that because I just found. I just found a book. I don't know how fresh it is, but I just found a book on Amazon that might. DC Adventures RPG Heroes and Villains, Volume 1. Uh, It will be in stock September 21st, 2020.
0: Really? Yep. Who's the publisher on that?
1: Uh, That's a good question. Amazon is tough when it comes to
0: publishers. It tells me the authors. I'm looking. I'm looking. Green Ronin. Green Ronin. Wow. Yeah. That's Like I said... I was just, I was thinking about that the other day, and I was kind of surprised that for as big as those, both those, you know, obviously the Marvel with the movies and the MCU and all that, but that neither of the, the two big comic book franchises or publishers have currently licensed games out there as far as actual RPGs.
1: Yeah, I um just a, just a cursory Google search, and I found a DC, like I said, that's DC Adventures, so it'll be coming soon. Let me see if there's any Marvel RPGs. Out or coming soon.
0: Like I said, I know TSR did one years and years ago. Let me do some Google foo.
1: There might not be with Marvel being owned by Disney. They're a little weird when it comes to stuff like that.
0: Yeah.
1: Most recent one I'm finding was from 2003, and that was a Marvel-produced RPG, like published by Marvel Comics. So... Okay. I would say no.
0: Yeah, the, the Marvel superheroes from TSR, uh, the last edition was released in 1986. I don't know uh, how long they held the rights for it, but I'm assuming that that was gone before they were bought out. Yeah, I would say that's a...
1: Uh, well, actually, there's one newer from 2012 published by Margaret Weiss,
0: but that looks like it's the most recent. Yeah, I, I that has to be something with, with weird licensing. And I mean, now that Star Wars is owned by Disney, but I know Fantasy Flight acquired those rights and I think... Probably back when the
1: Star Wars gaming shake-up happened, because there was a whole shake-up in who had rights to Star Wars games.
0: 2012, 2014?
1: Yeah, somewhere around there.
0: You know, how long that was for or anything, I don't know, and... Not that concerned with it at the moment. You know, the stuff's out there. It lives on.
1: It does. And and it's out there to play.
0: Yeah. And actually, if you want it, I believe Fantasy Flight has bought the rights and sells reprints of the old West End Star Wars, which is actually the very first game I ever played.
1: Yeah. And you can find that on Amazon for actually reasonably priced.
0: Yeah. You can get it on Fantasy Flight's website too. Yeah.
1: Shall we go to Game of the Week then? Uh, yeah. Let's go ahead and go to Game of the Week. You want to start? Sure. So
0: this week I did some digging around, and I think I'm going to go with one that's actually free, legitimately free. Well, for the PDF, that is. It's a game called Ironsworn, and the reason I kind of want to bring this up is, one... PDF is is legitimately free. It's not even pay what you want. Now, you can buy print versions of this through DriveThru. It's one of the titles they do sell print versions of. It doesn't say it's print-on-demand, so I don't know if it is print-on-demand or, or not. But I did see somewhere it is digest size. So the books are actually 6 by 9 They're not big textbook size. Hmm. But one of the unique things about this is that it has three modes of play. There is your traditional guided play where one or more player takes the role of characters and then you have a game master moderating everything. You have co-op, which is GM-less. You and one or more friends play together. And it also has set up for solo play. And I've, I've heard some things on it and it's supposed to be very, very good. Looking at the spread on DriveThru, and uh, this is one of the games I downloaded before we started, I haven't actually opened the PDF to look at it yet. But judging from what they've got up on drive-through, it looks to be an extremely well put together product. You know, very good layout art. I heard something when with an interview with the creator of this, uh, I believe his name is Sean Tompkin, that I'm going to steal the next time I build a custom character sheet. And he uses a wound track instead of a hit point system, so it's, it's not as long as you couldn't really use this for D&D. But he just has his wound track down one edge of the character sheet. And the people interviewing him remarked about this, and he said, well, that's actually done that way for a very simple reason. So instead of you having to erase your hit points and rewrite them all the time in your character sheet, what you can do with his character sheet is just slide a paperclip up and down the side of your character sheet to represent where you are in the wound track. And I thought, geez, that's so simple, (laughs) and yet such a genius maneuver.
1: I like that. I like that. That is perfect because that is the most frustrating part of pen and paper is, oh man, I took damage. Oh man, I got healed. Oh man, I took damage. Oh man, I've been healed. Mhm.
0: And like I said, this is legitimately, you know, he distributes it for free through, um, through drive through, but you can also order, You know, even the hardcover though is only $28. So, I mean... As a side note, uh, I did wear a hole in one of my character sheets. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever done that, but then I often actually track my health... Like on a piece of notepaper, I don't actually track it on my character sheet usually. Oh, that was back when I started
1: playing and didn't know any better. But yeah, I, I <laughs> had just worn a hole in one of my character sheets and was like, well, now I have to copy everything over. And I played with such a group that I had to sit with the DM so he could watch me copy everything over. So yeah, I think that, that's mine for this week. Mine is also free. <laughs> <laughs> I have a game that's art is kind of bland, but... I thought seemed really cool and really well-written. It is called Atomic Highway by Colin Chapman. It is 100% free. It's not even pay what you want. You can get print versions. They're on drive-thru. The free version's on drive-thru. The art inside the book is a little generic, but the game is a post-apocalyptic driving game. And
0: Steve? Yeah? That was the other (laughs) game I downloaded before we got on to (laughs) record. And no folks... We did not no, talk about we this. did not. We, we actually hit each other cold with these all the time.
1: Uh, I got it, and I got uh, Irradiated Freaks, which is the expansion for it as well. Uh, okay. But I spotted it and was like, ooh, that could be fun. It's played with D6. Yeah.
0: It actually showed up
1: in the sidebar from uh, Ironsworn. Hmm. That's how I found it. Yeah, I went to the free section and was like, what's popular right now? And it was like, this one's pretty popular. I'm like, ooh, could be fun. But yeah, it looks like a pretty cool, just post-apocalyptic, maybe think Mad Max driving game. And that seems fun. Yeah, decent character choices, interesting rule set, played with... A handful of d6 i think they advise three to five which is pretty nice so not not something that you would need specialty dice for you could definitely steal dice out of pretty much any board game you have yeah monopoly yeah it seems like a pretty fun game now again if you're looking at it and you're scrolling through and you're looking for artwork it's not the prettiest game but i mean it has an art style for somebody i think it's it's decent looking, but it's not. The art doesn't blow me away. I, I just saw the title and, oh, that looks
0: interesting. But the art the art style fits for kind of a post-apocalyptic thing. it's It's not overly lavish, but I like it. It, it looks like it works. It's very sketchy. I,
1: there's there's some images that work better than others. I will just say that. But again, mm-hmm. that's
0: being nitpicky for a free game. Yeah, but there again, if you want to buy the hardcover, 25 bucks. Yeah, not, not too expensive. And that's for the, the nice edition. If you just want the standard edition, it's only 15. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, I grabbed that, and then I also grabbed its expansion, which it's technically an expansion to this game called irradiated freaks that adds pretty much what it says it adds modified humans and weird irradiated creatures to the setting which I thought seemed pretty fun.
0: Yeah, we didn't discuss this prior to recording, but I actually downloaded that game before we started recording.
1: That's funny. I figured it would be up your alley, but I just was like, "Oh, that looks cool."
0: Yeah, no, it's, I I did see that and I went, "Oh, that looks interesting."
1: Well, with that, do you have anything else to add? Because I think that covers me.
0: Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's pretty much it for me too. I think we're good for today.
1: Well, want to thank you for listening and be kind to one another and play some RPGs. Be kind to one another, play some RPGs.
0: Catch you next
1: episode. Intro and outro music by the band 12 Noon. You can email us at meandsteverpg at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash meandsteverpg. Thank you and be kind to each other. How much for the cigar? Cigar, 20 bucks, dog. You gotta go down the street to the store and buy that.
0: this is someone that I heard something that I'm ever going <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
1: Well, I, I described it to a buddy of mine. I'm like, what does Tom Morello, Vince Vaughn and big show from WWE have in common? He's like, I don't know what I'm like. They all play D and D together.